so it's been uh, it's been a month and a half, and so uh, I had to I had to hit you I had to hit you with a sermon title that would probably discourage you from inviting anyone to church. If you look in your if you look in your bulletin, uh, so like the process is like like sermon titles come to me over the course of the writing process. And so over the course of the writing process, the title of Christian nationalism that you can believe in uh, came to me. Um, and, and, and if you didn't, if you didn't know anything, if you didn't know anything about Mosaic, uh, you know, you could think that I was going to get up here and spout some Christo-fascist things. Um, it's not going to happen. Don't worry. Uh, it's going to be much better than that. So we're, con- we're, con- we're, continuing, we're continuing this week in the book of Isaiah. And this is going to be really healthy for our congregation because the biblical prophets summarize nicely for us what pleases the Lord and what makes him upset. And the prophets also give us a, a bracing and beautiful, a, a number of bracing and beautiful images of the world to come. Images of the kingdom of God. Images of the world working in the way that the Lord set it up to work. And some of these things are things that we actually have to wait for until Christ returns. But some of them are things that actually we, by the Spirit, can actually enjoy right now. So other, other sermons may, like, start dark and then, and, then, and then get happy at the end. This text does the opposite. It begins with a soaring account of the mountain of the Lord for, like, three verses. And then for a number of chapters, it lays out in excruciating detail the failures of the people of God and the judgment that God is coming with. And so we're going to talk today about how good what God has in store for us really is, and why we constantly settle for less. That is, after all, the essence of idolatry, that we settle for man-made morsels when the creator of the universe has laid out a heavenly feast for us. So today we're going to talk about the mountain and the day. In Isaiah 2.2, Isaiah 2.2-4 is a profoundly beautiful account of this feast that God has for us. In fact, it's so good that the Bible says it twice, here and exactly the same words in Micah 4. And this is a picture of the kingdom of God. We've talked a fair amount about the logic of the kingdom of God and what that looks like. And this is it. This is it laid out in a community. Verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see, this verse is outlining a world where the people of God fulfill the purpose that God chose them for. Isaiah is the prophet who, who spends the most time with this theme, the theme of cosmic redemption, the side of redemption that we often pay less attention to. Back in Genesis 12, that, that original covenantal text, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, the next part, what we would like to hear, if we were to apply it to ourselves, we'd we'd like it to say, I'll bless you and make your name great so that you can flex on the haters. That is not what he says. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see, the purpose of God's choosing of Abraham or his choosing of Israel or his choosing of Christ and all those who are in him is not for the exaltation of those people at the expense of others. The Lord blesses so that the ones whom he blesses can be a blessing. 
And, and, that's, not, and that's not a blessing that, that imposes or, 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 or exploits or dominates. It's the kind of blessing that invites. You see, the image of the mountain of God, when an Israelite would hear that, the, the mountain that they're going to think of is Sinai. The mountain where God initially gave people the law. And if you remember the narrative, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, and the people are told to stay away from the mountain. In Exodus 19, he tells the people, don't go up the mountain and don't even touch the edge of it, because you or any animal that does that will be immediately put to death. Nobody, don't even touch it, not even the priests, nobody. But that's Sinai. At the eschatological mountain, this mountain in the last days, this new Jerusalem, everyone is invited. You don't have to stop at the mountain. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to avoid touching the mountain. You can go up and learn directly from the Lord. People are not going to be pushed away. They'll be invited in. And in a nutshell, that's, that's a picture of what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be an inviting sitting, city on a hill. It's supposed to be a community of physical, social, economic, and spiritual liberation. It's supposed to be a community of true justice, as verse 4 outlines, where people are not doing the judging, but the Lord is, with righteous judgment. It's supposed to be a community free of war and of violence, as the rest of verse 4 outlines, where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. That is, these, these, these weapons of war are to be refashioned into, into tools of feeding. What was used to kill is then used to bring life. It's meant to be a community where, where folks don't train for or even think about war because true peace has descended on them. Not merely the absence of conflict, but the positive presence of justice. It's a community of, it's a community of, of, of equity. And this is actually something that, that Micah lays out uh, in Micah 4.4. So he'll, he'll lay out this same, this same account of the mountain. And then there's a, and then there's a verse in, in Micah 4.4 where he says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. What's that? What's he saying there? What he's saying is the vines are where you get grapes, which is how you get wine. What he's saying is that people are going to have the resources not only to feast, but to share. When we're talking about the equity that comes in the kingdom of God, it's about everyone having not only enough for themselves, but enough to share. We're talking about a community that is free of abuse. We're talking about a community that's free of need. How do I know this is the case? Well, this is precisely the way that the church is described in the book of Acts. And it's the way that the early church operated. In Acts 4, we're told that, the, that God's grace was at work so powerfully among his people that there were no needy persons among them because everyone shared of what they had. Which is to say, this part of it is not something that, we're, that we have to wait for. It's something that we can do right now. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's, what, that's the end result of a life lived by its logic. And so there's a question that ought to pop up in your minds. Why are we not doing that? Why is that, why is that not the current situation when we, when we look around at the church? Well, Isaiah gives us two answers. Those two answers are pride 
and idolatry. And pride, I think we hear, we hear a lot about it, but idolatry doesn't, doesn't hit our hearts as hard. And it should. After all, idolatry and the oppression of the poor are the two things that make the Lord and the prophets most upset. And so I think it's in our best interest to not partake in either of those things. But I think, I think, I think some of us still consider idols to be like statues that we bow down to. And so we're going to have to broaden that definition, and Isaiah is going to help us. So I want us to take a look at the rest of this chapter. In verse 6, we begin this cascade of judgment. Isaiah begins by telling, his peop- telling, telling the people, that the house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord because we've forsaken the Lord. And in verse 6, he tells them that they've gone to other sources of spiritual knowledge besides the Lord. In verse 7, he tells them that they're greedy warmongers. He says, their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Greedy warmongers. In verse 8, He tells them that they're idolaters. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And so people are humbled and everyone is brought low. Do not forgive them. See, one of the things that that Isaiah presses here is that idolatry is ridiculous when you think about it. All sin is ridiculous, but specifically idolatry. Like He's like, look at these people bowing down to things that they made. How ridiculous would it be for you to bow down to a vase? Or for you to bow, or for you to or for you to take a take a take a take a spoon out of a drawer and put it on the and put it on the ground and bow to it. That's the ridiculous image of idolatry that Isaiah is drawing. But this ridiculousness doesn't lead to the Lord's dismissive laughter. It leads to his wrath. It's helpful if we read every four in verses 12 to 16 as as an against. I want to reread verses 12 to 16. The Lord Almighty has a day in store against all the proud and lofty, against all that is exalted, and they will be humbled, against all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the towering mountains and all the high hills, against every lofty tower and against every fortified wall, against every trading ship and against every stately vessel. You see, Isaiah is showing us the heart of the Lord in this passage The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, has an object and a focus. And that focus is human pride. Why? Because pride systematically destroys the lives of the people of God. As an example... I, um, I, I, uh, so I did, I did theater all through, all through undergrad. Desiree does not like this story because she thinks like theater comes out bad. It's not, it's, this is not theater's fault. It's my fault. So, so in my, so in my, se- so in my senior year, I was, I, I played a principal role in three consecutive plays. I was also leading a men's Bible study. I was also an RA for a four freshman. I was also dating Desiree. When, 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 if you know anything about, if you know anything about theater, when you do that much theater, you don't actually do other things. And so throughout that time, I was not going to this men's Bible study that I was supposed to have been leading. I was, I was on probation as an RA. 
I was, I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak to what my uh, dating relationship looked like. That, you'll, you'll have to ask, ask Desiree about that. Um, but, 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 but at the end of, the, at the end of that year, when I, when, I, when I reflected on that year, and I asked myself the question, like, what, why is that the case? Why did I continue to pour all of that, particularly for me, into theater? It was because... I loved attention. I loved the applause. And so, and, so, and, so, and, and so because of that, my other responsibilities, which were much more important than my own ego, I let those things slide to the side. And because of that, I, su- I suffered for it. And one of the things that the, Lord, that the Lord presses throughout the scriptures is that human pride only leads to destruction. And verses 12 to 16 describe all of the ways that human pride can show up in our lives. And these verses refer to the idols of Israel, and they refer to our idols. And so, let's ask that question. What are our idols? Well, this passage points to three of them. First, our material possessions. Second, our comfort. And third, political power. Each of these are things that we're tempted to trust in, and to seek at the expense of the Lord and the people whom he's called us to serve. And so I want to talk about them each, each in succession. First, our material possessions. This is what he's talking about. Uh, this is in, in, verse, in verse 16 when, when, when we see that there's, that there's a day of the Lord against all the ships of Tarshish or, or any trading ship and every stately vessel. What he's, what he's talking about, he's talking about economics. He's talking about the fact that we see economic security as something to seek so that, so that, we, can, so that we can really have it all together. There's a reason why Jesus talks about money so much. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. There's a reason why greed always shows up in Paul's lists of sins that keep you out of the kingdom of God. He's going to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that we're not to eat with those who say that they're Christian and yet are sexually immoral or greedy. He'll say in Colossians 3, 5, to put to death what is earthly, fornication, impurity, all these other things, and greed, which is idolatry, he says. It's all over the Old Testament, and yet it shapes the world around us. It's, in fact, what lies at the heart of a capitalistic economy. Businesses thrive and often only survive when they grow. And yet often that growth requires continued consumption. Consuming the people around you, consuming the environment around you. Integral to the health of our economy is not just profit, but profit maximization. And that sounds to me like greed. It asks the question, how can I suck the maximum value out of this good? Now, some of us, we got a lot of entrepreneurs here, so I'm talking to the business owners. But a lot of us are not. And so how does that show up in our lives? Well, at its root, greed is really just the constant desire for more, the constant desire to accumulate. And so when you think of your own life, what's something that you just want more of? And how much are you willing to sacrifice to get it? 
Are you chasing a raise or a promotion at work? Not because you need it to live, but because you want the rush and the recognition that comes with it. Do you want to make more money because you think it'll make you happier? Contemporary economists will refer to people as homo economicus. That is, people whose primary concern is to increase their own pleasure by just consuming more and increasing their leisure. Just buy more stuff and take more vacations, then we'll be happier. Vacations are good. Rest is good. But, but it can also be an example of greed. Here's how, here's how one author describes some examples of how greed might show up in our lives. Measuring your self-worth against what you get paid. Allowing raises to stoke our egos. And this last one. Thinking that God prefers that we make sure that we're shored up against every possible financial disaster before we open wide our hands to the marginalized. Brothers and sisters, one of the most alarming things to keep in mind when we look at the scripture's constant warnings about greed is that they're not addressed exclusively to the rich. They're addressed to the poor too, and middle class folks. The love of money does not discriminate. And, when the, and, 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 and where the Son of God constantly encourages us to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to our love of the marginalized, many of us are going to push that off to the side and instead invest in ourselves. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're super generous in, in wise ways and support, support the poor and the marginalized as the Lord has commanded us. Well, in that case, let's talk about this second idol, comfort. How much of our lives are spent protecting and investing in our own comfort and security? Isaiah 2.15 refers to this, that the Lord of hosts has a day against every high tower and every fortified wall. Well, the higher a tower is and the more fortified a wall is, the more a people think that they're safe. We think the same way. But there's another thing that towers and walls do. They cut us off from, from one another. You see, the idol of comfort manifests itself also in this. And I think this is actually an idol that hits a lot of us. And it's the idol of self-sufficiency. It's that you work and you live so that you can provide for yourself and not depend on anybody else. And brothers and sisters, as much as this may be the American dream, it is toxic to the Christian life. The Lord has not called you to independence. He's, he, he's called you to holy interdependence and a full dependence on him. You see, there's a, there's a reason why when God provided the people with food in the wilderness, he gave them manna. It was something that he had to give them every day and they couldn't accumulate it because it went bad. See, there's a reason why in the prayer that Christ teaches us, he says, give us this day our daily bread. That is, give us our bread for today. Now, to many of us, that sounds like a, like a really precarious life. After all, I'd, I'd much rather have a fridge and a pantry full of food than be, de than be dependent on, on somebody else. And yet, it's through that dependence that true community is built. This is why meal train ministries are such a blessing. It's been, a huge, it's been a huge blessing to me, Desiree, Jasmine, and Junia for these last few weeks. We are dependent on you, the congregation, for our dinners. Because we don't have the capacity for it in this, in this season. With a newborn, I, we're, barely, we're 
probably going insane. Patience is wearing thin. There's Jasmine's throwing tantrums. Like there's it just there's a lot going on. And dinner's a lot to add on to that. And so, and so, and 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 so we have, like, I'm not ashamed, I'm not ashamed to say that at all. We have needs. And the Lord has blessed us with a community that seeks to joyfully meet those needs. And the fact of the matter is this. I know all of you have needs too. But the idol of self-sufficiency whispers in your ears, don't tell anybody. They'll think that you're weak. Just power through. You'll be fine. But you don't have to power power through, dear brother or dear sister. Self-sufficiency is really just dressed up pride. It's you telling yourself that you can make it on your own, and you can't, and you shouldn't. You see, the Lord has called a people to walk alongside you, to, to hold your arms up when you can't, to feed you when you can't think about cooking, to watch your kids when you don't have any energy left, to clean your house when you just can't get up out of bed, whatever it is. And I, 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 desper- I, I beg of you all, do not let the idol of self-sufficiency eat you up. There's another idol I want to talk about. It's the idol of political power. Now, this one is going to permeate the book of Isaiah because Isaiah is uttering these oracles to kings, constantly tempted to live according to the logic of the kingdoms of the world. And he's going to tell them, don't listen to the advice of enemy nations. Heed and trust in the Lord. But they don't listen. Because the idol of political power is a powerful one, and it's one that we see around us even today. Sociologists Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead define Christian nationalism as an ideology that fuses a particular kind of Christianity with American civic belonging and participation. In the Christian nationalism that we see on the rise in our political scene, there are a few other elements to it. There's a distinct whiteness to it. There's a xenophobia to it. There's a violence to it and authoritarianism. You hear the military language of taking back the country for God. You hear the desire to declare the United States as a Christian nation. There's there's something I gotta say about that. So I, 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 I want us to be very careful about the things that we associate with the name of our, of our savior. I have no desire to closely link a history of racialized chattel slavery with my savior. I have no desire to link a history of indigenous genocide with my savior. I have no desire to link a history of lynching, of Chinese exclusion, of any of these things. I have no desire to link these things tightly with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have, when we, when we have national sin in our past, present, and future, you repent of it. You don't link the name of Jesus to it. Sorry. At the root of these movements is something very distinctly unchristian, and it is the desire for dominance. Remember the mountain of the Lord that we've been talking about in Isaiah 2. This is a mountain, not of top-down enforcement, but a mountain of invitation. And what what we're seeing around us is not that. There's actually a tour going on right now. It's gathering thousands of folks. It's called the Reawaken Roadshow. Masquerading with Christ's name, people are being recruited to think 
that Christianity should be at the root of this country's governmental institutions, but it's currently under attack. And so we all need to fight for its reassertion with the tagline that Jesus is king and Donald Trump is our president. Now, it's, it's like saying Jesus is king and Caesar is our emperor. Like, why are you saying, what, Jesus is king. That's it. You can stop there. The goal is not a nation. So, and the goal for movements like this is not a nation of Christians. It's a nation with policies that favor Christians. And there's a difference between those two. Because if we wanted a nation of Christians, then we would invest in evangelism. But evangelism is hard. Evangelism requires trust in the Holy Spirit. If you want a nation with policies that favor Christians, all you need is money and political power. All you need are the tactics of the world. You can do that without, without Jesus. And the thing is, this is, a, this is a temptation that it's not new. It's not restricted to a particular political party. It's, it's easier for any of us to align ourselves with political strongmen that we can see than to align ourselves with a savior who calls us to suffer. And the people of Israel and Judah were tempted in the same way because they had, they, they, they had a superpower of Assyria looming over them, telling them the only way for you to beat us is to use the weapons of the world. And so the idol of political power and of dominance wooed them. And here's what this idol comes down to. They and we are tempted to think that the only way that we survive and thrive is if we align ourselves with earthly powers. Because we're tempted to think, you know, if I were in charge, everything would be better. Or if my group were in charge, the world would be a much better place. Well, I mean, you, you might be right. Or you might be exchanging one batch of sin for another, one round of exploitation for another, one tyrant for another. To the Lord, depending on human authorities is just as ridiculous as bowing down to a spoon. It's why God was so upset with God's people in 1 Samuel 8 when they told Samuel they wanted a king. God was supposed to be their king. They, it, it, was, it was the entire purpose of him gathering them as a people. He's like, I want, I, I want to build this community where I rule, where I show you the way that people are supposed to live. And then the world looks at you and says, oh, that's different. I want to be a part of that. It's, and, 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 and to have the people say, well, we want to be like everybody else. We, we, we want to have a king. It's, the, the fundamental purpose of your community is that you are not like everyone else. So what does that mean for us now, today? How do we resist these idols? Idols of greed, of, of accumulation, of comfort, of self-sufficiency, of political power, of domination. We fight them with true worship. Worship of the one who transcends all of those things and bears witness to a different way. Christ. Because consider the opposite of pride, humility. Now think about somebody who would have the most reason to assert himself, the most reason to assume a political throne, the most reason to see himself as self-sufficient, the most reason to hoard. God has infinite resources. Why not keep it for God's self? And yet that's not the God that we serve. 
No, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could never be humbled or brought low by anyone else. So he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. The all-powerful creator refused the kingdoms of the world when Satan offered them. And he came not as a rich, self-sufficient entrepreneur, but as a poor man dependent on his disciples and on his heavenly father. He did not hoard his lavish resources, but instead he poured them out upon the people whom he loved. And why did he do all of these things? Why did he ultimately go to the cross to die? Not just any death, but a, but a shameful death. He did this to prepare you and I for the day of the Lord. You see, Isaiah ends chapter 2 with an explanation of how most people are going to react in the apocalyptic day of the Lord. It's a day of fear. People are running to caves and stuff trying to get away. And it's terrifying because when your life is rooted in human pride and somebody shows you how ridiculous it is, you don't have, you run away. But what the Lord is saying is that there will be nowhere to hide. Anyone captive to the idols that we've talked about this morning will have nowhere to hide when the Lord visibly exalts himself above all of the puny gods that we erect for ourselves. And for those who do not know the Lord, that's terrifying. But if you do know the Lord, the feeling is actually the exact opposite. Because this is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the day when God's righteous judgment rules the day, when, when, when the day when all of the oppressed will go free, when, when our bodies and minds will be renewed, when our communities will be healed, that, 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 that the good news of the day of the Lord is, 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 is that salvation is not just personal and it's not just communal, it's cosmic. That the day is coming when, when the world will know the Lord, when equity will rule the land, when peace will reign, when the nations will know war no more. And that won't happen as a result of our power grubbing. It won't happen because Christian nationalists finally have their way. It'll happen when the true king returns. But here's the, but here's the, here's the, great, here's the great thing. We have an opportunity to bear witness to this truth right now, right here. Because we can say to one another, right now, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Because the kingdom has come to us in Christ. And the Lord reigns here in this community by his spirit. So my prayer for us is that we would, is that, is that we would eagerly seek both peace and the eradication of idolatry in our midst here. It means we ought to reject self-sufficiency. Ask for help. The Lord has called us together. To serve one another. Reject greed. Give to your brothers and sisters. Put pride to death. Humble yourself in service. Throw your idols away. And turn toward the only one who can truly give life. The God who molded you. The God who shaped you. The God who loves you. And the God who sent his son and his spirit to and for you. Let's pray.